Father, we just want to thank you for the privilege we have to know you. Not just to know that you exist, Lord, but to intimately know you and to know you through the Word of God. So I just pray that you would still each woman's heart and mind right now, that she might focus totally and completely on what you have to say through the Word of God and through her, your servant, Catherine. And Lord, we just thank you that we have the mind to understand as we continue to, to just delve into this Word. We love you. Thank you so much for loving us and for this season when we can celebrate the great love of Christ and what he's done for us. Lord, help us to honor and glorify you in our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This is going to be our 25th lesson in our study of the early church from the book of Acts. It's also going to be our 8th lesson on the message of Stephen. Now, I did not have any idea it would take us eight messages to get through that wonderful sermon, but I'm glad that it has because it is, if not the best sermon, the most fantastic sermon in the book of Acts, that at least is one of them. And it is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Stephen, we all know if you've been here, had reviewed Israel's history in that sermon. And he had talked about the great contributions made by some of her most remarkable, notable men in history, um, most honored leaders such as Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon. And in doing so, he not only refuted the charges that were falsely made against him and consequently made a defense of all of us, all Christians, but he also refuted, he uh, made charges against them. He addressed the national sins of Israel. So he defended himself and he made charges against Israel. She was the one, not him, she was the one who had blasphemed literally everything that God had ever, ever given her. Her deliverers, her law, her temple, her prophets, her covenants, her blessings, her scripture, the land he had given her. They, they blasphemed, made of all, all those sacred things of no effect when they killed his son. Because that's what everything was about. It was all about his son. So when they killed him, I mean, the law, the temple, all of it pointed to him. When they killed him, they made of none effect everything that God had ever given to her. And yet it was so tragically ironic that in spite of Israel's long history of rebellion against her God-sent deliverers, and her God-sent spokesmen, the prophets, and her apostasy from the true faith, and her ongoing adulterous relationship with other gods, because she had a problem with idolatry. In spite of all of that, Israel's leaders, overall, in general, now there were exceptions, but overall, they were men of immense pride. And you'd think coming from a background like that, their ancestors, that they would be a little more humble. But they were extremely proud. They believed themselves to be the true and only spiritual rulers, guides of the whole world. They were that. They were them. They were the big mucky muck spiritual leaders of the whole world. And you know what? The truth is they should have been. They should have been because they had the true God and they had the true scripture. But they, they should if they had been right with God. If they knew God, if they had a right relationship with God, who they claimed they served, you know what they would be doing? They would be doing exactly what Stephen was doing. They would be, and what the apostles were doing. They would be trying to convince everyone, Hebrew Jews, Hellenistic Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, they would be trying to, to, to tell everyone in the world that Jesus of Nazareth was God's son now resurrected from the dead, having provided eternal salvation for all who believe on him. That's what they should have been doing. However, they continued, sadly, to be blind leaders of the blind, and as a consequence, they led the whole nation into a ditch, didn't they? A ditch that they're still in to this day. Well, so Stephen's selective narration of the three major eras of Israel's history that he went through. First of all, he talked about the patriarchal era, 
the period of the patriarchs. Then he talked about the Mosaic Law period. And then last week we looked at the tabernacle slash temple period. Um, and those, now in his history of Israel, that's brought him to the present day where he was in time. And tragically, that was a day in which Israel had just recently committed the most horrific sin of her entire sordid history because she had just recently rejected and murdered the one who was both the source and the subject of the entire Old Testament. Now, although we talked about this, although the common people in general, they did recognize that Jesus fulfilled the prophet like unto Moses credentials. Many times they said, this has got to be that prophet that Moses was speaking about. They recognized that, but their religious rulers envied him. They did not like the light that his goodness was shining on their darkness. They did not like the obvious favor of the Father upon him. And so, just like Joseph's brothers, and like the enslaved Hebrews in bondage, when Moses attempted to deliver them the first time, the Jews, the leaders in envy, thrust him from them, didn't they? But unlike the case with both Joseph and Moses, they actually did what? They killed him. They actually killed him. And in doing so, they merely, they merely did exactly what he had prophesied they would do from the very beginning of his ministry when he said, it was a prophecy, that they would destroy his temple. And then he did exactly what he had also predicted he would do. When they destroyed his temple, what would he do? Raise it up in three days, and that's exactly what he did. Now, every good sermon has an application. It's the time when the preacher takes what he has said in his message and he makes it personal. And he does his best to apply to the hearts of the listeners, his hearers, as you know, what he has said from the word of God, he tries to, to make that pertain to something in their lives. <clears throat> Not just, you know, he doesn't want to just talk about something that happened in the lives of people past that are now dead, but he wants to take it and apply it to the here and now. A, an application to a sermon basically says, okay, now that you have heard what God's word has to say about so-and-so or about such-and-such, what are you going to do about that in your own life? How are you going to apply the lessons you learned from that person to your life? That's an application. It's usually the most uncomfortable part of the sermon. <laughs> because that's the part that tries to, you know, calls on us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only, right? Well, Israel's high court, they had just gotten a quick review of their own history, which at first they permitted Stephen to present because if there was one thing they loved hearing about, it was themselves and their heritage, their history. So they, you know, they let him go and they, he had quite a bit of time to do that. But as he is proceeding through each one of those eras, slowly but surely they're beginning to be reminded of a lot of things in their history that made them a little uncomfortable. They had selective memories. You know, they were only remembering the good things and they didn't really want to remember all those bad things. So they're getting a little bit uncomfortable. And then Stephen was very adept he was very sharp about stressing geographical places of historical significance that been, had been outside of the land of Israel, places where uh, their honored forefathers had experienced the hand of God in their lives. And it wasn't always in Israel, was it? A lot of it, well, it started out with Abraham in Mesopotamia. And Joseph spending most of his life in Egypt and most of the patriarchs spending most of their lives in Egypt and being buried in Samaria, of all places. And then Moses never even so much as set his big toe in the land of Israel, did he? So Stephen was very good about stressing the geography of things because the Jews were very proud of their land and being the Jews of the land. So the tension was building as the council members started to see where Stephen was going with this. But would he really dare to do that? Would he really be that bold? You know, they can kind of sense where he's heading. 
They rejected Joseph the first time. They rejected Moses the first So they're starting to get it, but he certainly knew his life was in the balance here. So would he be that bold? Would he bring things to the boiling point by daring to state that what they had done with Jesus was a continuation of a pattern begun by their forefathers, a pattern of stubborn resistance and mistreatment, not only of the sovereign and his saviors, but of the scripture and their sanctuaries. Well, if that is what they were beginning to suspect that Stephen was going to do, guess what? They were 100% right, because that's exactly what he did do. Let's look at his application to his sermon, which is actually an indictment of Israel, a rebuke of Israel, her spiritual leaders. Look with me at verses 51 to 53. Stephen, now this is angel face Stephen. Not exactly a sweet mother's boy, though. Listen to this. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. That takes boldness. <laughs> which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. And they knew that was a term for the Messiah. And then he says, of whom ye have now been, ye have been now the betrayers and murderers who have received, you people have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. That is bold. They were very proud of keeping the law. Well, Stephen's application sounds just like something that the Old Testament prophets would have said, right? Was Stephen a prophet? Yes, he was a prophet. He was speaking forth the truth, the word of God. He was a New Testament prophet, and he sounded just like the Old Testament prophets. He also sounded just like the forerunner of the Messiah. What was his name? John the Baptist, bold. He also sounded a lot like Jesus himself, because Jesus didn't pull any punches either, did he, with these religious guys? So Stephen was following in good footsteps. Actually, he was following in the best of footsteps. But he was not so naive to realize, to not realize, where those footsteps would lead him. Where would they lead him? Where had they led the others? To their deaths. But for him, the truth. For Stephen, just like the others that preceded him, the truth was more important to him than his own life. Talk about application. Could we say that with ourselves? Is truth more important than our own lives? I hope it is. It should be. Well, likely by now, Stephen had perceived that his listeners were reaching the end of their tolerance and were soon going to make him stop. So by the spirit of wisdom, remember he's a man full of wisdom. He's a man with an irresistible wisdom. It's what the scripture said about him. And by the spirit of courage, that's the extra grace that God gives to a person in a predicament like this. And also with the spirit of power that filled him. He was filled with the spirit, it says. He launched into his application rebuke. He had been accused of four things. Had he not, what was he accused of? Blaspheming God, Moses, the law, and the temple. I put those in the right order. <laughs> and now guess what he does? He accuses them of four things. He accuses them, you can see in the outline, of resisting the Holy Spirit, persecuting and slaying the Old Testament prophets, betrayal and murder of the just one, and also disobedience of the law. The difference was that the accusations that had been made against Stephen were false. The accusations made against them were true. But first, he called them some of the same things that God Almighty had called them. You know Stephen was a student of the scripture by the words he uses. What did he call them? Stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears. Well, after the Israelites had made that golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai, the Lord God had said to Moses these words. He said, go Get thee down, 
You know, he could see what was going on. Moses couldn't. He said, go get thee down, for thy people have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it. Can you believe this, Moses? Can you believe this? And he says, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That's in Exodus 32, verses 7 to 9. And then 40 years later, 40 years later, Moses himself is speaking to the Israelites, and they're about to go into the land, finally. They're finally about to cross the Jordan. He's not allowed to go with him, so he's giving them one of his last messages. And here is what he says. He says, the Lord did not give to you this land as a possession because of your righteousness. <laughs> that was an understatement. He said, but be because you're a stiff-necked people. So Moses was using God's word, wasn't he? He said, he didn't give you this land because of your, you're so wonderful. And you're righteous. He's giving it, you know, for his purposes. Because you're a stiff-necked people. That's Deuteronomy 9.6. And then Moses went on to tell them that they needed to circumcise their hearts and be no more stiff-necked. Well, then Moses gave the people uh, the words of the law. When he did give them the words of the law, he had told the Levites, the Le Levitical priests, to put that law inside the Ark of the Covenant. He said it was to be there, it was to stay there, to be a witness against them. And here's what he said. For I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, ye have been rebellious against the Lord. And how much more after my death? For I know that after my death ye will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And listen to this. Moses was definitely a prophet. He says, I know after my death. I mean, if you've been rebellious with me when I have been with you trying to keep you straight, if you've been rebellious with me, what's going to happen to you when I die? And he says, I know what's going to happen to you when you die. You're going to be utterly corrupt. And then he says this, and evil will befall you in the latter days. That's Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 to 29. Moses predicted of Israel that she would corrupt herself, and in the latter days, evil would befall her. Well, technically, do you know when the latter days began? They began with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's been the section of time called the latter days since Christ. So Moses was right. He was absolutely right, of course, God was speaking through him. He was a prophet of God. They did utterly corrupt themselves when they rejected and crucified their own long-awaited Messiah. As a result, what has happened on Israel? What has happened? Evil has fallen upon Israel in the latter days because of her continuous stiff-necked rebellion and resistance to the work of God the Holy Spirit. She is still to this day experiencing the evil that has fallen upon her. And anti-Semitism is on the rise again, isn't it? It's never really left this world, to be honest, but it's on the rise again. Now, what does it mean to be stiff-necked? Have you ever had a crick in your neck? <laughs> Some of you have had worse than that, right? Broken necks? Anybody ever had a broken neck and you had to wear one of those collars? Yeah, stiff-necked. Well, not in the physical term, you know, that you can't help, but to be stiff-necked, spiritually speaking, means to be obstinate. The word pictures someone who is in defiance. Now, in the case of Israel, God used it repeatedly. I was surprised. I went through the concordance and saw how many times God called his people stiff-necked. <laughs> he liked that term because it really described them. And Moses echoed the term. He heard God use it, so he used it as well as a description of of the people of God in their refusal to bow before him in submission, in submissive obedience. And throughout Israel's history, as Stephen had just demonstrated in his brief narration of their history, she had refused time and time again to submit to God, hadn't she? Over and over and over again. Her ears stubbornly would not hear the truth her heart would not receive the truth, and her neck would not 
bow to the truth. It made me think of the big fat Greek wedding. You ever see that movie? Was it really? Well, in that movie, that, that's really like my story. I was that Greek girl and wound up marrying the Caldwell because I went through all the Greek guys and yuck, you know. So I said, <laughs> really, I laughed myself silly through that movie because so much of it is true except the Windex part of it. I don't know where that came from. But anyway, there's one point in there when, she, you know, her mother is talking to the girl, the Greek girl, and, uh, you know, you have to listen to your father. He's the head of, he's the, head of the family. And, oh, yeah, he's the head. That's right. I got to do what dad wants me to do. He's the head. But the mother looks and she says, yes, he is the head, but I'm the neck. <laughs> I love that, right? <laughs> the head kind of has to do what the neck wants it to do. <laughs> a stiff neck. A stiff neck does not easily turn from side to side, right? Because it's, it's stiff. It can't turn from side to side with ease. Nor is it able to bow the head easily. The heads of the nation, the heads of the nation, who Stephen is talking to, they were not looking around. They were not looking around at others uh, who would be affected by their choices, their decisions, and their actions for even millennium to come. You know, by rejecting their Messiah and what they did now in their final opportunity to repent is with Stephen's message. Are they thinking that what they're going to do is going to affect Israel till this day, thousands of years and many, many people? No, they're not thinking about others at all. They're not looking right and left at other people. They didn't turn with concern to see their neighbors to the right of them and to the left of them, like they're the Greeks and the uh, Romans and the Samaritans and even the Hellenistic Jews of the diaspora who were considered second-class Jews. They weren't looking at their neighbors, um, people who were just as equal before God and just as needy of God as they were. Um, and they didn't look up. You know, a stiff neck doesn't look up very easily. They were not looking up for God's guidance, were they? Compare that with what Stephen does in verse 55. Look at verse 55. But he, that Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, what's the first thing he did? Looked up steadfastly to heaven. They weren't looking up, and neither were they bowing their head down, uh, you know, in submission to the authority of God in humble repentance for their obstinate resistance of the work of God. To be stiff-necked is to be stubborn. It's to be willfully stubborn. You know what these guys were like? Mules. They were stubborn like mules. Have you ever thought if somebody, maybe at your funeral, somebody compared you to an animal, what animal would it be? I was thinking, isn't this dumb? I was thinking about that yesterday. <laughs> I wonder what animal you would compare me to. I hope it wouldn't be a mule. <laughs> well, in saying that his listeners were uncircumcised of heart and of ears, Stephen's point was particularly cutting. You get that's a pun. He was essentially saying to them that they might be very proud of being circumcised, you know, circumcised Jews in their external obedience to the law, but in heart and in hearing, in heart and in hearing, where it really mattered, they were uncircumcised. In other words, they were on the level with heathens because they made, paid no more attention to the authority of God and to the authority of his word spoken through Abraham and Moses, etc., all the prophets, Jesus, and then the apostles, and now Stephen. They paid no more attention to that than the uncircumcised. And as time went on, guess what? The heathens, the uncircumcised, would actually come to faith more readily in Christ than they did, than they would. The religious rulers needed the hardness of their hearts removed through spiritual circumcision. They were under the dominion of the pride of life, weren't they? And that's a terrible dominion to be under, the pride of life, which was not only keeping their ears from hearing the truth of the word of God, the voice of God, but was turning their hearts to stone when it come, came to the Holy Spirit's work of trying to convict. You know, the more you hear the truth and the more you harden your heart against the truth, what finally happens, like with Pharaoh? Finally, he hardens the heart 
to the point where you're beyond hope. That's a scary place to be in. You know, it always said Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh, and finally it said the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's what's happened here with Israel's leaders. They hardened their heart so many times against Jesus, well, against John the Baptist, and against Jesus, then against the apostles, and now against Stephen, their last chance. And it's, they've come to the point beyond return. And now really God has judicially hardened their hearts. And this is precisely what Stephen is accusing them of doing. After he called them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, he said to them, Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. That's why he went to the trouble of telling them their history. He's saying you're just repeating what, what your forefathers did. They were just like their forefathers who had resisted the work of the Holy Spirit in and through so many of the Old Testament deliverers and prophets. I'm just going to give you one example, um, and it, it's found in the Lord's words to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, who was also a priest, by the way. It says, he said, son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation. Notice how many times God says rebellious and calls them names about their rebellion. He says, I send you to the children of evil to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this very day, for they are impudent children and stiff-necked. <laughs> there you go again. And whether they will hear you or not, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will at least know that there has been a prophet among them. That's what God said to Ezekiel. It says, go out to this rebellious, impudent, stiff-hearted, stiff-necked people and speak the word of truth from me to them. I don't know if they'll hear you, probably not because they're a rebellious house, but at least they'll know that a prophet has been among them. Well, Stephen is speaking to this same rebellious, impudent, stiff-hearted, stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked? <laughs> Did I just say that? <laughs> stiff-naked <laughs> people. Same, same bunch of guys, you know, they're just like their forefathers. He's speaking to them, and they willfully stop up their ears. Look at verse 57. Can you believe it? I mean, they're just like their forefathers. It says in verse 57, they cried out. This is the Sanhedrin guys. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. There you go. They needed their ears circumcised, didn't they? But they kept them uncircumcised, so they stop up their ears, um, and they resist the spirit. But at least they knew, and I think they really did know, that a prophet had been among them, just like it said with Ezekiel. Just by the glow on Stephen's face, I think they knew that they had a, just like with John the Baptist, they knew he was a prophet of God. And just like Jesus, they knew. And I think the same is true here with Stephen. Well, Stephen's second indictment, his first indictment against them was that they always resisted the Holy Spirit and continued to do so. His second indictment of the Jews was another one in which they continued the disobedient path and pattern of their Forefathers. He says, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? He asked that question, and then he answered his own question by saying that the fathers had slain the very men who had showed before, this is in verse 52, who had showed before of the coming of the just one. In other words, your forefathers, which of the prophets didn't they kill? They killed the messengers of God who had come to show forth ahead of time the coming Messiah, the just one. Now, you see, those, those prophets had not only come, you know, had shown forth the coming of the Messiah, the just one, by their words, but how else had they shown forth the coming of the just one? by the way in which they were persecuted and mistreated and even many of them slain. In that, you see, in the fact that they were rejected and most of them were killed, they were showing forth how it would also be when the just one came. 
So you get it? They not only showed forth the coming Messiah by their words, by also what the people did to them, they showed forth the mistreatment of Israel to the Messiah. Now Stephen had already drawn that rejection picture with his paintbrush and his palette when it came to Joseph. He had drawn that picture of rejection of the Messiah by giving them their history of Joseph, who would have been murdered by his brothers if God had not providentially intervened. And he had also drawn that picture of rejecting their true deliverer when he came the first time with Moses because he too had been rejected by his own people. And even after he returned to them, after having delivered them from their bondage, what did they do against him after he delivered them from bondage in Egypt? Well, the whole rest of his life, they murmured against him. They sinned horrifically against God by building that golden calf and turning to idols. They blasphemed the law by breaking the law even as it was being given up there on top of Sinai. And they demonstrated even envy toward Moses. They envied him and they threatened, him to, they threatened to stone him. And that was after he delivered them. What took place in the wilderness with Moses was then, it, it continued to be the history of Israel's mistreatment of her prophets. That was just a picture of things to come. The way they treated Moses was the way they would continue to treat all of their prophets. But they were about the most unappreciated group of people that I think this world has ever seen. Um, particularly when the people and their kings were engaged in sins against God, which was pretty frequently. The worst being, of course, their continuous involvement, entanglement, I should say, with idolatry. The prophets denounced the people. You know, they were, all, they were the ones with the long pointy fingers, just like John the Baptist. They were always denouncing the people for, for doing that, for turning to adulterous affairs with idols. And they always were warning the people of impending judgment. And, you know, people don't like to hear that, do they? Judgment is coming. Judgment, you know, they want to, that's when they want to stop up their ears. I, you know, some of you just turn the TV off because you don't want to know about it, right? Hide your head in the sand like an ostrich. I just don't want to know. Unfortunately, that's not good. That's what they did with Nazism, right? So many people just didn't want to know what was going on over there. Well, so they weren't very appreciated. Um, they spoke for God, and God is pretty bold, isn't he? And he's pretty blunt, isn't he? We just heard some of the things he said. So the prophets, the speakers for God, were bold, and they were blunt, and they didn't worry about being diplomatic. They didn't worry about being popular. They didn't worry about being soft-spoken or politically correct, did they? They just said it like it was, and it certainly did not make them very popular. Even in the best of reigns, when, even when there was a good king, there was always an evil factor in the nation that mocked and abused the prophets, and most of them were put to death. I was thinking, do we have prophets in our world today speaking out for God? Yes, we do. We have some, some that we should be listening to. We should be listening to what Franklin Graham has to say. That man is right on the mark. We should be listening to some Jewish prophets who are also born-again Christians, like Jonathan Kahn and Joel Rosenberg. I think those are 21st century Jewish Christian prophets to this world. There are, there are prophets, and we should be listening to them. Well, when the Lord, remember when the Lord gave his denunciation discourse of Matthew 23, he cited in that discourse the proud boast of the Jews of his day. You know what the Jews of his day were saying? Same crowd that Stephen's talking to. They went around saying, well, if we had been the ones who were living during the days of the prophets, we would never, we would never have done what our forefathers did. We would never have put them to death. We would have been different from them. And you know how we know that? Because look at these beautiful tombs that we have built for all those godly, righteous men of God who were slain. We built big tombs for them. So that means if we were living, when our forefathers were living, we wouldn't have, done, we wouldn't have martyred them like that. 
But you know what Jesus said in that? When they said that, he denounced them as hypocrites. Again, talk about bold. Woe unto you, hypocrites. That's exactly what he said. And then he said, you are your own witnesses that you are indeed the children of your murderous forefathers. And he said, you will fill up the measure of your forefathers, meaning you'll even fill it up more. You'll do more than what your ancestors had done. You know why he said that? Because he knew that they had allowed, already allowed John the Baptist to be put to death. They could have prevented that, but they didn't. And he knew that at that very time of that denunciation discourse, they had already met together plotting how they would kill him, how they would get rid of him. He knew it, and they knew it, and their own intentions proved that they would fill up the measure. They would be even more evil, far more evil than all of their wicked ancestors put together because they were planning how to kill the prophet of prophets, the king of kings, the lord of lords, their messiah, the savior of the whole world. And that's when he spoke his harshest words ever spoken in his earthly ministry. He said to them, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. Now what do both those terms, serpents and vipers, refer to? Satan. You're the children of Satan. Identified them with Satan. He says, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? That's pretty sharp. Wherefore, behold, I, I, listen to this, Jesus said this, I sent you prophets and wise men. Who sent the prophets? Jesus said he did. God did. Jesus did. Jesus is God. He said, I send you the prophets and wise men. Well, guess what? Stephen was both prophet and a very wise man. He said, and scribes. A scribe is a man lettered in the scripture. Was Stephen lettered in the scripture? Yes. And some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. That's all about to begin with the early church. Right after they persecute and kill Stephen, that persecution begins from city to city of the Christians. And then Jesus went on to say that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon earth from the blood of righteous Abel, who was killed by his own brother, right? His own brother, all the way to the blood of Zacharias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Can you imagine killing a prophet of God between the temple and the altar? Well, that's where Zacharias was killed. And Jesus said, all the blood of all those righteous men is going to be put upon you. And those were the last public words that Jesus ever spoke within the confines of the temple. And then he left the temple. And remember what he said when he left the temple? He said, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Well, Stephen, the spirit-filled prophet, a man full of wisdom, even beyond, at that time, even beyond the wisdom of the apostles. A man immensely lettered in the scripture. A scribe of scribes, we could say. First in the list of the deacons assigned to the church to help the apostles in the ministry of the early church, and soon to become the first Christian martyr. Was boldly, boldly, brazenly, unapologetically, echoing the words of his Lord and Savior. They were their own witnesses of the fact that they were just like their fathers, forefathers in their stiff-necked, uncircumcised hearts and ears. They were just like their forefathers in their resistance of the Holy Spirit. And they were just like their ancestors who had persecuted and slain the prophets. But the truth was they were even worse in his third indictment, his third charge against Israel's high court, Stephen accused them of the betrayal and the murder of who? The just one. Yes, Jesus, their Messiah. And as he had demonstrated throughout his sermon, that, reject that rejection and that murder was not just a unique, isolated event. When they killed their own Messiah, that was not a unique, isolated event. Now, it was unique in that 
in the degree of the rebellion because they were actually killing God's son. But it wasn't really unique and isolated in the fact that the historical precedent for it was there in every one of their epics, every one of their periods that they betrayed, rejected, rejected and even sometimes killed. God's spokesman, right? So the precedent is there. The council knew by Stephen's term, the just one, that he was claiming that Jesus was God. There's only one just one. He says, the, not, not a just one, right? He says, the just one. <clears throat> now they know that, that Stephen is a follower of Jesus Christ, right? So they know who he's speaking of when he uses that term, the just one. They know he's a follower of Christ, a believer in Christ. That's why he's in front of them, because <laughs> he's been preaching about the resurrection, the gospel of Christ. And they know also by calling Jesus the just one that he is making a claim to Jesus' deity, because the only just one is God himself. So they know he's speaking of Jesus. They also know because there was no one else who had just recently claimed to be the son of God who they had betrayed and murdered. <laughs> so, they, I mean, it was not a puzzle for them to figure out who he's talking about. They knew exactly who he was talking about. By slaying the one of whom all the prophets spoke and pictured by their lives, the Jews of first century Israel proved that they too would have killed the Old Testament prophets if they had lived with them. You agree? They would have, you know? To which of the prophets do you think they would have shown honor and respect if they had not shown honor and respect to the Son of God himself? If they didn't treat the, the greater good, they certainly wouldn't have treated the lesser any better. So they, And they proved that, really, with John the Baptist. They proved it. They did not like John the Baptist. Well, as Stephen had turned every accusation against himself and his fellow believers to an indictment against his accusers, he likewise also did with the law. In verse 53, he said that the law was received by the dispensation of angels, or disposition of angels. You know, in Galatians 3.19, it tells us that the law is said to have been ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Okay, so who was the mediator? No, who did God, all right, it's just like the book of Revelation. The Lord Jesus gave the message to the angels and the message then came to John, all right? Well, the same thing went with the law. God gave the law to the angels who then gave it to Moses. Moses was the mediator, okay? Even with, so the angels were involved. It tells us that, I think, in several other verses, too, that'll be in your note. But even with all the heavenly reverence placed upon the law, those who received it didn't keep it. You know, um, when Moses um, had seen for himself firsthand, you know, got up on the mountain, saw what was going, he said, get down there. And when Moses actually did get down there and he saw what was happening, that his own brother had made this golden calf, and you know what he said? You know what Aaron said? He said, well, we you know, collected the gold earrings and we threw them in the fire and they came out like this. <laughs> That's about the worst excuse I've ever heard. <laughs> That's what he said. You can read it. <laughs> it just came out like that. Brother, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but when, he saw, when Moses came down and he saw that golden calf set up on that altar and he saw the lewd celebration that was going on around it, he was so furious that what did he do with those two stone tablets? Can't you see Charlton Heston standing there? And what does he do? Rose it down. And they break in pieces. And he was so mad. They were breaking the law, you know, before they had even gotten it. Um, and Israel's history had been one of law breaking ever since. Which isn't that true for all of us? For all have broken the law, right? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All those Israelites were showing us was a picture of ourselves and how none of us can fulfill the law. That's why we need a savior. We've all broken the law. But Israel's long law-breaking history climaxed, came to a peak 
when she murdered the one far greater than the angels who had assisted with the giving of the old covenant. She murdered the actual lawgiver, and she murdered the one who fulfilled the law, the old covenant, as well as she killed the new mediator of a new covenant. And with that accusation, Stephen's message was ended. This is the end of his sermon. Now, I think he might have gone on. <laughs> Perhaps he had more to say. Likely, he, he did have more to say. But I think he could see, I think he could see that their response to all he had just said was not going to be a very positive one. How do you think he could see that? By the red glow on their faces and the baring of their teeth. Maybe it was their hands over their ears. Very good. Let's look at their reaction, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, that doesn't mean they gnawed on him like a bone. Okay, a dog does with a bone. But it means they were grinding their teeth. Let's all do that. Everybody do that. Have you ever seen a dog growl like that? That's what they're doing. The brush and palette had been put down because the picture Stephen had been painting was complete. He was finished with his portrait. And then with both of his hands gripped tightly, firmly on the handle of the two-edged sword of truth, he lunged <clears throat> straight for their heart and he hit it. He hit it big time. Actually, what Luke tells us in verse 54 is that when he says they were cut to the heart, literally in the Greek, the word cut there is dia prio, and it means their heart was sawn in half, just like they had done with Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. You know, he was put in a log and sawn in half? That's what Stephen did to them. He cut their heart asunder, sawed it in half. The spirit had taken the truth of their own history, and the Spirit had taken the truth of Scripture and had torn off the hypocritical, pious masks from those false shepherds of Israel and had succeeded in exposing them for exactly who they were. They were convicted to the marrow of their bones, to the center of their hearts. They were convicted. And this could have been good, but... Rather than being broken in repentance, they were infuriated beyond words. In fact, they had no words to answer Stephen because his assessment had been right on, right on the money. And so all they could do was gnash their teeth at him, which is an act that denotes immense rage and frustration. The council members were exactly what Stephen had said they were. They were stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. They were more rebellious. They were more unreasonable. They were more wicked than even their forefathers because they were more accountable for their sins. They had the privilege of the additional witness, hadn't they, of the words and works of Christ himself. They'd had all that additional witness. They had the words and the works of the apostles. And they even now had the message from the most brilliant Old Testament scholar of the early church at that time. He even, you know, because he's born again, Stephen was more brilliant in Old Testament scripture than Saul at this point in time, right? They had that witness from a man who had the face of an angel. His face is glowing like the face of an angel. So what they had done was exceedingly more evil than any of their predecessors because they had killed the just one. They had killed, actually we could say, God himself in a human body. You can't kill God. That's why he couldn't stay in the grave. But they had murdered God's son in the flesh. It had become evident by this point in Stephen's defense that it wasn't him who was on trial. 
His hearers were the ones who were on trial before God. They were the ones who stood accused. They were guilty of having blasphemed everything that God had ever given them. His covenant promises, his prophetic promises, his physical deliverers, the law, the tabernacle, the temple, the prophets, his own son, their spiritual deliverer, their only spiritual deliverer, his own son, and even now his gospel message. They had received the gospel delivered through the spiritual body of his son on earth, the church. So in dishonoring and desecrating the gifts that had been given to them, they dishonored and dis desecrated and blasphemed the giver, didn't they? And the giver was God. They had blasphemed God, and they were absolutely speechless to defend themselves. And they didn't like that. They didn't like that one bit, but they had nothing intelligent that they could say. Remember, Stephen has an irresistible ministry. All those times in the Greek-speaking synagogues, including Paul, Saul was in there, no one could answer him with either intelligence or scripture. They could, they, there was nothing they could say intelligent or scriptural to refute his words, as had been the case with Jesus' use of scripture and logic and history and reason. Just as with Jesus, they're totally dumb struck. There's nothing they can say. Actually, if you read through, I was kind of surprised by this, but if you read through to the end of chapter 7, they never say a word. There is never a written word recorded of anything that they said. Now, it does say in verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice, but nothing is recorded what they said. They just went, ah, you know. They had no words of reason that they could say in answer to Stephen. There's never one word in their defense. Um, however, rather than pleading guilty and repenting, how did they react? I mean, they were cut to the heart, but how did they react? Well, they reacted as infuriated religious zealots always react <laughs> when in confronted with the light of truth, with the light of the gospel. Yeah, they, they, they responded in satanic anger that led to murder. They didn't want anyone exposing their sins. In a manner of speaking, these evil men were already in a little bit of hell. Their hearts are hardened beyond hope. They're already in a little bit of hell, we could say. Their reaction was the final phase of the hardening of their hearts. The saw of the Spirit's conviction had ripped right through their souls but they would not admit that they had been wrong. They would not repent. It's not that they couldn't, it's that they wouldn't. Now, do you remember the, the Lord's words to the Jews that I'd already said to you a little while ago in his denunciation discourse when he said, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Those in hell will spend eternity doing what the men of this council were doing in, reactions to, in reaction to God's servant. What will people in hell do for eternity? Gnash their teeth. In repentance? No. In unrepentant anger and fury. In Luke 13, I'm almost done here, the Lord Jesus said some things to Israel that I think are important for us to look at real quick, quickly as we close out a look at this last opportunity for Israel as a nation. This is the last opportunity for corporate Israel to be saved at that time. She's still waiting for her salvation. It won't come until his second coming. But this was her last opportunity to be saved at that time, and Jesus would have returned and set up the kingdom. But here's what he said in Luke 13, verses 24 to 29. He said, when once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, 
And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. When ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And then he says, and they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Who's that talking about? Gentiles. You and I. Everybody to the east, west, north, and south of Israel. They will come and sit down in the kingdom of God. Wow. You know, that made the Jews mad to hear about that. The Gentiles are going to come and they'll be in the kingdom and we're going to be thrust out. They're going to be knocking at the door. Those Sanhedrin guys knocking at the door saying, Lord, Lord, you know, let us in. You know us. We're the big mucky mucks of Israel. And he's going to say, depart from me. And it's going to happen with people in the church age too. Depart from me. I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. The Jews of Christ's day wanted the kingdom, but what they, had they done? They killed the king. You can't have the kingdom without the king. And they refused to repent and come to him. And so he says in Matthew 8, 12, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is going to be a place full of angry people. You see, judgment, judgment only makes unsaved people even matter. They had grace. If they refuse grace, what do you think they're going to do with judgment? It's going to make them even more angry. You can read through Revelation, and it's amazing. After all the judgments of the tribulation, you know what it keeps saying? They, knew it's the, they know it's the wrath of the Lamb that's coming on earth, and yet it says they're raising their fist in his face in rebellion. And it says, but they blasphemed God. They blasphemed God. Judgment only makes unsaved people matter. And the, in hell, if you think people in hell, if they were given a second chance that they would repent, that's not the case. They're down there gnashing. They're so mad at God, and that's part of the anguish. They're going to just be mad and angry forever. It's horrible. They hardened their hearts. Um, the spiritual leadership of Israel had had opportunity. It's not like God didn't give them a chance, okay? They had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for submission to the loving grace of God. But they hardened their hearts a little bit more with each one of those opportunities. Tragically, Stephen's spirit-filled, spirit-led message of last warning did not soften their hearts. They were convicted, but they still resisted the Holy Spirit, just as he said they would do. Well, next week in our final lesson on one of the greatest Christian men who I believe has ever lived, we're going to see a drastic comparison between a spirit-filled man dying and a hate-filled bunch of men killing him. A spirit-filled man dying and a hate-filled mob killing him. And that contrast is so vivid in the extreme that it's really almost like a difference between heaven and hell. So, Lord willing, we're going to wrap up our study on... Stephen and the book of Acts next week. All right, let's pray. Father, help us to understand the proper applications in our own lives of the principles that you have taught us through our extended look at Stephen's marvelous ser sermon. Thank you for the life of Steve Stephen and all he has taught us and will again teach us by the way he died. May we genuinely have the true Christian perspective on matters of eternal value, that you are not bound to work just here or only there or just with this particular group of people and not with that or this particular denomination and not another. May we understand, Father, may we appreciate the fact that you are ready and you are willing and you are able to work anywhere you desire and in whomsoever you desire and our desire I hope I speak for everyone here, is that you would work with us, in us, and through us, that we would not grieve or quench your Spirit's work in us and in spite of us. May we never be so close-minded and bound to our own viewpoints on matters like traditions 
and customs and rituals or heritage or historical practices or cultural preferences that we would not allow you to work howsoever you will. May we be, Father, a revived people in these last days. May we truly strive to be Stevens who see ourselves as always available and as certainly expendable for the sake of truth being presented to a very, very, very needy world. We ask these things in Christ's blessed name. Amen. God bless you.